Support for this podcast comes from you. And Biogen, committed to transforming the treatment of neurological disease. Biogen is working to develop life-changing therapies for people with multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, ALS, and spinal muscular atrophy. Biogen.com science. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One thing I've learned from occasionally interviewing historians about people who've changed America is that really successful people can also be a little unusual. H.J. Hines was obsessed with numbers, which maybe is not surprising for someone whose company is famous for its 57 sauce. Hines kept track of how many steps churches had, how many people were in train cars with him. He didn't even like to have an uneven weight, so he had a hat that he'd wear to even things out if his weight was between pounds. Estee Lauder was obsessed with which hand of yours to demonstrate her creams on. She liked the right hand. She kept track of lighting. She kept track of placement of her makeup in stores. These people were anxious, and their compulsions were ways of coping with that anxiety. Sharon Bagley says that a compulsive behavior is one that is repeated and chronic, and it arises from a feeling of anxiety. She's the author of the book, Can't Just Stop, an investigation of compulsions, and a senior science writer at STAT, which is a news website focusing on health and medicine. She notes that anxiety has skyrocketed in America, eclipsing depression as a concern for adults. Sharon, thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you for having me. So, as I said, anxiety has gone way up. Does that mean to you that we are also experiencing more compulsive behavior, you know, like checking 10 times to make sure the stove is turned off or exercising compulsively? I wonder if these things go hand in hand. So studies, which are not great, but the best ones out there, suggest that about 6% of Americans are compulsive shoppers, one or 2% have a clinical diagnosis of OCD. And I use those two examples for one reason. OCD is a recognized psychiatric disorder. You know, there's a code for it on the insurance form. You can get treated for it. Your doctor can get reimbursed for it, et cetera. Compulsive shopping is not. So many of us have compulsions that are not recognized as mental disorders, and therefore they're not counted very well. Um, Research goes where the money is, and if something is not reimbursable um, for treatment, it just is not studied very much. So what the experts told me is that more and more of us are feeling anxiety and therefore are engaging in a compulsive behavior, Mm. but because that behavior is not a mental disorder, it is not very well counted or even studied. Let me give you just one little example. So there's a woman I spoke to for the book, and she is perfectly functional. She's a piano tuner. She's a mother. She's a wife. She has a wonderful life. But she is compulsive about how she keeps her home. Every bathroom towel has to be arranged just so. Every item in the pantry has to be organized and categorized and almost alphabetized. And what's the... Will she not leave her home if that's... If things are not right or like what... If things are not right, what happens? She feels, um, it was she who described the sort of lava welling up in her chest. Mm. Um, She just cannot stand it. She has to put it right. And no, she will not leave the house Mm. until she has put it right. Okay, so anxiety has gone up. uh, Compulsive behaviors have gone up. But for, you know, for most people diagnosing, 
these do not cross into the realm of obsessive compulsive disorder. So this is not like, you know, what you would categorize as a medical affliction. Right. And that's an important point that I make in the book. Just because you have a compulsive behavior does not mean that your brain is broken. In fact, it can mean the opposite, that you are reacting to, that you are coping with the events in your life, you know, the surround in a very adaptive, i.e. helpful way. And the obvious example for all that, of course, are the digital compulsions, the electronic compulsions that so many of us have. And that is where compulsive behavior has just skyrocketed because, of course, these things did not exist 10, 15 years ago. I want to get to that. But a question here about where the line is, you know, you talked about this woman who's really obsessed with cleaning up her towels and stuff. And I think for a lot of people who have some little piece of some kind of compulsive behavior that they do, they wonder, "Mm, what's okay and what's not okay? Um, I am a huge list maker. And if I think of something as I'm falling asleep that should be on my list, it's kind of hard to go to sleep because then I think I'll forget it. And then I don't, it kind of keeps floating around in there. So my solution has been have a pen and paper right next to my bed and then I can write it down and get it out of my head and it's there in the morning when I wake up. bad? Is that compulsive or not yet compulsive? It doesn't cross the line. You know, do you know, where's the line of like, ooh, that's not good? (laughs) That's good compulsive because you have figured out um, what is causing you anxiety, which is, uh uh-oh, I won't remember this when I wake Mm. up in the morning. And you have figured out a way to deal with it. So psychiatry has not covered itself with glory in terms of figuring out what is and is not a mental disorder. The most infamous example, of course, is the uh, decades that the American Psychiatric Association called homosexuality a mental disease, right? So that was not good. And psychiatrists are very sensitive to over-medicalizing things, which are really just, you know, spots along the continuum, the spectrum of human behavior. I mean, you know, humans are a varied lot. So I will just defer to the experts and say that the difference between an eccentricity, a quirk, a sort of unusual behavior, and a mental disorder, to your point, when does it cross the line, is that if it is causing you distress or impairment, then it is a mental disorder. So distress is, you recognize this as, uh, I, obviously depression causes distress, so no no mm-hmm. question there. Um, impairment would be clearly with OCD. If you have to run to the restroom 100 times a day to wash your hands and your hands are now raw and bleeding, that obviously is impairment. If you have to keep checking to see if the stove is on, the front door is unlocked, so you're late to work all the time, that is impairment. So that's a very sort of um, mainstream conventional wisdom view of it, but I'm going to stick to it. Distress or impairment mm-hmm. is where mental disorder begins. You know, I talked about... Um people who have manifested compulsive behavior, some of them very, very successful people, not not to say that they had very happy lives, just that they were very successful people, you know, the people like um, Estee Lauder and H.J. Hines. And you talk about people, John Milton, you know, famous for writing Paradise Lost. Is there, do you think, some linkage between compulsion and sometimes success and sort of, you know, renown in your field. I'm glad you asked that because for many people um, who I spoke to as I was starting the book, the assumption was that compulsions are bad. They're crazy. They wreck your life. So I was really um, interested in seeing whether that is true. So I do include a chapter in the book of people whose compulsions arguably helped them or helped the world. So just briefly, um, I include there people who 
donated a kidney to a stranger. Not all those cases are compulsive, but for many whom I spoke to, and I think I include two examples there, when I asked them, just why did you do that? Their description fit the fit that of a compulsion, i.e., when they read about people who were on the waiting list for a kidney and they knew that many of them would die before an organ was available, it did fill them with this anxiety that is the defining characteristic of a compulsion. And they just felt they could not sit there. They had to go out. They had to find the network that allows you to donate a kidney to a stranger. Hmm. And they just absolutely had to do it. They just couldn't sit there. It really was like a burning sensation, a, you know, I couldn't sit still sensation. But more, much more common are people who feel compelled to we'll just call it work, to do whatever their field happens to be. Um, that can be literature. Um, Hemingway famously said, I feel like, you know, excrement when I don't write. Um, <laughs> I include the example of an artist who worked on one sculpture called The Rose for many, many years. She just felt she never got it right. And, you know, she was tortured. Her life definitely was not happy, but the world has this amazing work of art as a result. Hmm. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I started this book was just looking around the newsroom where I worked at the time and seeing how none of us then or now um, can go anywhere, including the restroom, without our smartphone, of course. So there, there clearly is a compulsion to keep checking because it is so crucial to our work. So a lot of the compulsions are really just fueling, um, you know, people's accomplishments. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Sharon Begley, author of the book, Can't Just Stop, an Investigation of Compulsions. Is there an evolutionary reason why we have an inclination? Is there something deep within us that this is tapping into that in some ways, I mean, I assume is good for us or once was good for us. Absolutely. We are wired to be anxious because, you know, to make the evolutionary argument, those of our ancestors or predecessors who did not have a good antenna for what should make them anxious, they did not become our ancestors because they left no descendants. They were killed by the, you know, whatever, the saber-toothed tiger who, <laughs> you know, who they did not notice because the rattling of the the leaves or the the, the, the noise of the breaking twig did not make them anxious. There's a reason why we pick up on sources of threat, of danger, and the again, the perception of that is anxious. So absolutely, we are wired for anxiety. Some of us have overactivity in the anxiety circuit. It's called the OCD circuit. So there absolutely is both an evolutionary and a neurological, neurobiological explanation for so much of this. So let's get to that uh, big question that I think everybody wonders, which is, is checking your Twitter feed all the time, checking your emails, checking the news online just to see, has anything changed in the last 15 minutes? Is that compulsive behavior? It can be, um, and it can be destructive, again, if it fits the criteria of distress or impairment. If by checking all the time you are sabotaging your real face-to-face, real-life social relationships, then yes. But the key to understanding um, these electronic or digital compulsions is that they have, and by they I mean the designers and just the way the, the whole industry has evolved, have tapped into something that is absolutely normal and functional in the human brain. And that is that we are just absolute suckers for a form of reward called intermittent and variable. The standard definition of those words, the rewards come 
now and then maybe not for 10 mm. minutes. And then another one comes in five seconds. So you just can't predict when they're going to come. That description was originally applied to the old um, slot machines, the one-armed bandits. I was going to say, as you said that, it was making me think of a discussion I had with a scholar who studies gambling behavior. And the thing is, you win sometimes. Okay, maybe not enough, but you win sometimes. And that's so exciting. And it's the the people who create the machines throw it in there enough that like keeps you going because you never know the next one you could win. You never know. You you get you know a lemon, a cherry, and a and a treasure chest. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then suddenly there are you know three jackpots in a row, and you go home from Vegas right. happy. Um, so that is exactly the reward structure in quotes of social media, of um, of email, of text, of of everything because. You know, maybe your friends are more interesting than mine, but I can go for a really <laughs> long time without what I would say is a life-changing text from a friend or an email or whatever, like a long time, like hours, like possibly even days. And then suddenly you <laughs> I can just, easily go there days without a life-changing so, text. Um, um, <laughs> so, but then occasionally there actually is one from you know, your child, your significant other, and you are awfully glad that you checked it within, you know, three seconds of its arriving. So we have, um, again, our brains are wired to be really, really sensitive to inter intermittent variable reward structures. And that is exactly how, um, you know, whether it's a post on an update on Facebook, a, a tweet, a, you know, whatever it happens to be. And that's why we can't stop checking. We might have checked five seconds ago. We might have checked five minutes ago. But that doesn't mean an amazing new one hasn't just come in. How did you first get interested in this topic of like anxiety and compulsions? And it, it was really nothing that um, everybody else hasn't observed. Um, it's exactly the compulsions that we're talking about, the, the electronic ones, the digital ones. Again, I worked in a newsroom and I saw that none of us can leave, can do anything without our smartphone. But the key thing to me was with more research, with the reporting and everything else, um, it became clear, and this goes back to one of your earliest points, that the reason we were doing that was not that we loved it. Mostly people don't love being attached to their smartphone. The reason they do it is because if they're not, they are just overwhelmed with anxiety. And that to me was striking because here's something that we do just all the time. It's ubiquitous, but it's not bringing us that much pleasure. Mm. It's I mean, I guess you can say if you stop banging your head against the wall, that feels good. But at base, it's not pleasurable. And that just to me was sad. Again, that's something that takes so much of our time is not pleasurable in and of itself. It instead is drawing away anxiety. And that's good, but it's not as good as it's really pleasurable. And then when this all really crystallized for me was when I came across a quotation from a British medical historian who said that um, every age gets the lunatics it deserves. So putting aside the problematic <laughs> word lunatic, his name is Roy Porter. And that to me was just very insightful um, in saying that, so in our age of anxiety, the behaviors that we are seeing are compulsive ones. Sharon Begley is the senior science writer at STAT. She's also the author of Can't Just Stop, an Investigation of Compulsions. Sharon, thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you so much. I mentioned at the beginning of this interview different conversations I've had over time about people who are great business minds, but a 
little bit obsessive. People like H.J. Hines and Estee Lauder, we've got links to those interviews on our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Destination Medical Center, fueling innovation, talent, and community in Rochester, Minnesota, home to Mayo Clinic. Learn more at dmc.mn. Every spring, tens of thousands of fans descend on a city of about half a million people in the Midwest. By any measure, these are serious fans. But they're not coming to see a singer or a sports team or a comedian. They're coming to see an investor in his mid-80s named Warren Buffett, who's the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. Zoe Fraud-Blenar says that these sorts of devotees deserve a special label. Super fans are those fans who are willing to make the fandom part of their personal identity. Fraud Blenar teaches at NYU, and she's made a study of superfans. She's the co-author of the book Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are. And she argues that the reason that so many people, lots of whom don't particularly have a lot of money, make the pilgrimage to Omaha to see Warren Buffett and watch him eat C's candy and hear him dispense wisdom about life and money is the same reason that people go to Star Trek conventions or proclaim themselves to be diehard Springsteen fans. It's because something about the thing that they love reflects who they are. It speaks to them in a way that few other things that they've encountered in life do. And Fraud Blenar says... We've seen a striking trend in recent years, a surge in superfans of all sorts. Now, it's important to say, there have always been fans, and there have always been things and people that drew large numbers of admirers. I mean, as long as there's been culture, there has been fandom. You see pilgrimages going back thousands of years. We certainly see back in Victorian periods, people going crazy for Mozart and throwing their under things at, at various composers and famous musicians. So this urge to act in fan-like ways, this is a, a very basic human thing. But in the last, say, 20 years or so, something's changed. And what's that something? Well, in a word, technology. But technology's working in two ways here. One is that being nerdy has, for a lot of people, become cool. The fact that we had the tech bubble in the mid-90s suddenly flooded the market with all of these white-collar, very high-status, highly-paid jobs, and it meant that the prototypical nerd, who perhaps previously was stuck in a basement somewhere and, and had a bit of a, a bad reputation as someone who, who you certainly wouldn't want to date, all of a sudden their social clout skyrocketed. Which is why, Fraud Blenar says, things that once seemed fringe or nerdy, including comic book heroes and video games, now feel a lot more mainstream. The other way that tech has created a wave of superfans is that tech makes obsession easy. What modern fans have, which has never been available throughout history, is they have immediate access. So imagine a fan back maybe in the 1800s. If you wanted to hear your music you had to go and find a local orchestra, and then you had to find some money, and then you had to pay, and you had to set up your timing, and you could go and listen to it. Right. If you're a music fan now, you press a button. 
So when you have so much less time being spent just tracking down these things that you love, you have a lot more energy for other things. You have all these fun ancillary activities that you now have time and energy to spend on besides just engaging in that primary consumption process. So you could do things like take a pilgrimage to the place where that singer was born Mm -hmm. or maybe try to convince your friends to come with you next time. Or perhaps you could start making rituals or traditions around the the visiting concerts or or maybe um, wearing clothes with that singer's face on it. These are all things which you could do before. But you probably didn't have the time or energy to do it because it was so hard just to do that that basic thing that you had to do to be close to the thing you loved. You, you also make the point, uh, and I kind of made it too, which is that fans are not only around the kind of people you would expect to have fans. The Beyonce's, Lady Gaga's, you know, if you go back, the Beatles or Elizabeth Taylor or whoever. Um, but they're also around all sorts of other kinds of people who you might not expect to have fans, like, for example, Warren Buffett, who I was talking about. Um, So talk about those people, the sort of the unexpected fan clubs that have popped up around not singers or actresses, but other sorts of people. You can have a fan for anything, any piece of culture which draws people in and, and people have an emotional tie to. That's going to work as as a fan object. There's uh, the wonderful example of Polaroid, something which people feel a deep emotional connection to, the act of taking instant photography. It's it's very close to people, but you wouldn't necessarily think of a, a photography company as being something that people are going to stand outside and hold up signs for. Right. And yet, they have. Polaroid itself has not done so well, but they are now rebounding as a licensing company just because people felt such an affinity for that company, for the the little square of white that surrounds people's pictures, for the feeling that they had when they were kids, that nostalgia of clicking a little button and you get that little scrap of paper and you hand it around and wave it. It's these rituals. (laughs) And some of the stories that you hear surrounding this instant film, I mean, these are very personal and full of emotion, people whose lives were changed by their connection with this product and, and this group and and the memories that they're creating are completely valid for all that it's a very non-traditional thing for them to love. Hmm. Apart from Polaroid and apart from Warren Buffett, are there products or people who you came across in researching the book who had kind of this fan constituency that really surprised you? In the process of researching this book, we came across probably over 100 fascinating, fascinating, fascinating groups. But I have to say, one that took me by surprise, there was a group called the White Rabbit Social Club. And they are uh, what's called a Disney Social Club. It's one of probably over 100 of these, you can't call them biker gangs, but they do wear biker-style vests, and they hang out at Disneyland in California. (laughs) And they are Disney fans, which is not an unusual thing, but the way in which they expressed their fandom was absolutely fascinating. They were lovely people, first of all. And uh, they they have this very almost kind of macho, uh, very tough guy take on being a Disney fan, which you wouldn't expect, but it's, it's a lot of... Uh, you know, wearing biker vests and and 
hanging out and and doing macho things, but also then there's a very nice Disney strain to it. They help out tourists and they give away <laughs> buttons and they help clean up litter and they give to charity. So it was really interesting, especially getting to hang out with them and see their culture. It's this very kind of heavy drinking, uh, very tattooed, much pierced, shaved head kind exactly of a culture. Exactly what you think of when you think of Disney. Exactly. Yeah, and except it's at Disney, and <laughs> and you know they're cheering for princesses and uh, you know having the time of their lives huh. riding Space Mountain. It's a lot of fun. I gotta say, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Zoe Fraud-Blenar, the author of Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are. Are there times when a really serious fan will lead a company astray? You know, and say, like, you've got to be faithful to the book, and that's what the super fans think. But if you really want to reach lots of people, not all of whom are big fans, you have to kind of deviate from you know, the the real traditionalist way of looking. You know what I mean? Are there times when listening too hard to the hardcore people is a mistake? There is this dark side of fandom. It's one that doesn't get spoken of a lot because most fan objects are just desperate to get together enough people that they have a fan group. But once you have one, you have to remember, fans are conservative, Fans are are inherently conservative. They do stifle change, which is to say when people love something, they love that thing. They don't necessarily want it to change. They might want it in a slightly different color or a different shape. But any time that the nature of their love has to be rethought, they're going to start getting angry. And one of the more recent examples was Maker's Mark, the bourbon and they had an important business decision to make. They needed to add a little bit more water to their bourbon so that they could stretch their supply in such a way that they could enter some new markets. It was a straight business decision. And they did their research, and they were fairly sure that from a product point of view, this wasn't actually going to affect the quality in any way because uh, having a, a higher proof uh, liquor actually dulls the taste buds, so it, it would not change the taste This was not going to be a a problem from the drinker's point of view. It was strictly business, and the fans lost it. They were not happy with this. The idea that they were going to be drinking an adulterated product for a week, they ranted, they made themselves heard, sometimes in in very unfortunate ways. It It was a scene of carnage, and in fact, Maker's Mark did, at the end of the week, feel like they had to rescind their decision, and they did. They decided to go a different route. And this is difficult because this was a a real decision, right or wrong, that they did have the right to make. And more to the point, it's possible that when they bowed to that fan pressure, they may not have been doing the right thing. It's very easy for a very small group of people with extreme views to feel like a much bigger group of people on the Internet. So talk a little bit about your personal experience working with super fans, because we haven't talked about it, but you actually, I guess, have some super fans of your own. Talk about that. Well, I am the co-owner of the company Squishable. We are a stuffed animal company. And the reason why we actually wrote the book, Super Fandom, is because very early on in the company, we started seeing these unusual behaviors among fans. We didn't realize we had fans. And then we started getting 
letters with people suggesting which stuffed animals we should make. And then we started getting posts in the very early days of Facebook making suggestions. And then all of a sudden they weren't making suggestions anymore. They were helping each other out when someone had a question. And then they weren't necessarily even asking questions about the stuffed animals. Now they were helping each other through breakups and <laughs> sending <laughs> each other, uh, you know, baked goods and and making each other art. And soon they started doing other things like raising money for charity. And they created a book club and they made a trading post to trade their stuffed animals and other things too. And uh, they they started petitions when they wanted certain items back. So this was all fascinating to us, especially since it soon became clear many of these super fans didn't even own a squishable. They what? were simply doing this for the, the love of the company and, and the enjoyment of talking to each other. But wait, how could they love the company if they didn't own any of the products of the company? Well, this was one of the early realizations that we made, which is fans are different from consumers. Fandom does not actually require any sort of commercial undertaking. A consumer consumes what they're given. They take the thing that they're going to buy, they buy it, they consume it in the way that it was intended, and then maybe they'll buy more. They watch the movie, they read the book, they right. get the action figure. Whereas fandom may not have anything to do with that. It has to do with uh, talking with each other and with um, showing your love in other ways, maybe making content, drawing pictures, taking pilgrimages. The two do often overlap, but they actually don't have to. Did these super fans change your company? And by the way, was there any time that you pushed back against them? <laughs> well, after a while, we started realizing that some of these suggestions they were giving were brilliant. Uh, and in fact, today, the company is very heavily crowdsourced, which is to say the fans actually design probably about 50% of what we release. We have a platform called Project Open Squish, which allows any fan to submit ideas and, and drawings of toys that they think would make a good squishable. And this has been very successful for us, things that in a million years we never would have considered making. A kitsune, a multi-tailed fox. We we saw it come through Open Squish. It won. We were like, oh, I don't know. We put it up for sale and we were sold out half an hour later. So it just goes to show. Super fans may be onto something. Yeah, they certainly know a lot more about our brand than we do. They're not always <laughs> right, but they certainly know what they want. And especially in a company which, you know, still in the world of toys is a relatively small player, uh, that's a huge advantage. Can, can you think of uh, an example of something small that got currency because, not because it was loved by millions, but because a small number of people were able to find it and support it? Well, actually, Nutella, the chocolate hazelnut spread. Oh, I know what Nutella is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, which we all we all know and love it now, but we didn't necessarily a couple years back. They actually, Nutella had no U.S. presence whatsoever. They were only European, and uh, there was a super fan of Nutella who was an American. She had moved to Italy. She said, we've got to change this. This stuff is wonderful, and she started a website, and she created World Nutella Day, which uh, is a wonderful idea, and uh, just really evangelized on behalf of this brand to the point where, in fact, they did become rather well-known and 
Nutella got enough feedback that they, in fact, have entered the U.S. market now in a very serious way. So this very small niche brand at the time really was given the impetus to grow into a much larger one because of fan activity. Do you see any uh, drawbacks to super fandom? I mean, there's a lot of people who invest a lot of time thinking about or spending money on, you know, Disney, Star Wars. Is that a good thing? There's been a lot of hair split over, is fandom good for people? And I think that may be asking the wrong question. Fandom may or may not be good for people, but caring about something is very good for people. So there have been a lot of good studies recently uh, that actually showed that, for example, sports fandom has huge psychological pluses. People who are into a sports team and care about that sports team, especially if they're near a social group that also cares about that sports team, they have much lower stress, they have lower anxiety, lower rates of depression. They simply are able to use their love of that team in order to live better lives. Zoe Fraud-Bonar is the co-author of Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are. She's also a founder of Squishable, a company that sells plush dolls, and she teaches at NYU. Zoe, thanks for being here. Thank you. I love Nutella, man. I really love it. I can eat this every single day. So this song is about Nutella. Yo. I love Nutella. I love Nutella, Nutella. I love Nutella. I love Nutella, Nutella. I love Nutella. I love Nutella, Nutella. Haters be hating because of my love for Nutella. They jealous The song you're hearing is called Roy's Nutella Song from the YouTube star Roy Wasabi. You can find the whole thing on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Sometimes dropping out of college seems like the right thing to do. That's how it seemed, at least at the time, to Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs, Brian Williams, Carl Bernstein, Michael Dell. It also seemed that way for Edwin Land. Land was itching to change the world, to do science experiments, to be free from other people's orders. He moved to New York. He traipsed around. He actually sometimes broke into Columbia University's laboratories. Land finally did go back to school, but it never turned him into a follow-the-rules kind of guy. If you don't know his name, you almost certainly know the company he started, a company that tried to understand how light worked and that came up with a product that, frankly, at the time, seemed magical. 60-second photography is the most exciting kind of photography around today. And once you've used a Polaroid land camera, believe me, you'll know that nothing else beats the fun and excitement of taking a picture one minute and seeing it the next. That's TV host Steve Allen doing a paid Polaroid spot on his late-night show. I guess our minute's about up. Did I tell you something? We had a Polaroid camera on an airplane the other day, uh-huh. and we kept taking pictures of the flight and the people on the trip, and it was just wonderful. Oh, yeah. Did I come out like a singer or something? See, I'll show the folks there. That's good. Isn't that pretty? <laughs> That's me. That's you. Land came up with the idea for the Polaroid camera, or actually his daughter did, on a family outing during World War II. Here's how he later remembered it. 
And my daughter, who was about this big, then said, Daddy, why can't I see the picture right away? It was in those marvelous Santa Fe days with the snow on the inch of snow and sunlight. You walk around in your short sleeves, and I went for a walk. By the time I came back, I pretty much conceptualized the total system and laid the plan of action for the subsequent years. When Land returned from Santa Fe, he talked to a colleague named Frederick Binda. Binda wrote about their dramatic encounter in a document that's now on display in the library of Harvard Business School, which is where I went to see it. This is what it said. On December 13, 1943, Mr. E.H. Land called me to one side and said he had a secret to tell me. He said that for years he had been toying with the idea and dreaming about a new photographic camera in which you simply photograph a subject and from that same camera roll out a finished picture. He told me that he now knew how to make such a camera. Before disclosing his idea to me, he asked me to think about it and see if I could figure out the solution to the problem. Which is great. (laughs) I'll tell you. But not yet. <laughs> what Land created, because his daughter asked for it, changed science, business, and pop culture. Ron Feirstein has written about the rise of Polaroid in A Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak Patent War. Ron, thanks for your time. Hi, Kara. So talk a little bit about um, Land as a person. Like, why do you think he came up with something so game-changing that nobody else had yet come up with it. Well, Land was a natural inventor. Land was someone who was happiest when he was in a laboratory trying to solve an unsolvable problem, or at least a problem that most uh, mortals would consider unsolvable. When he was a young teenager at a summer camp, was in an almost in an accident on a horse-drawn carriage where a car came and almost hit the uh, carriage Mm. because there were no lights on the carriage. And Mm. long story short, he decided that it would be very useful to find a substance that would take the glare out of bright light. Mm. And he started to do research, you know, in his teens on this subject. And he quickly found out that scientists had known about a substance that they called a polarizer that could do that. But the only natural substances around that uh, had that property were big crystals, big rocks that could take the glare out of bright light. Totally impractical. And the best physicists in the world had been looking for a more practical substance for hundreds of years. And Land dedicated his uh, early years to that. And in fact, uh, you mentioned earlier about dropping out of college. Well, he enrolled in Harvard. And at the end of the first year, went home to his father and said, you know, Dad, I'm dropping out because I want to continue my experiments. And not only that, but can you give me what the equivalent of $50,000 to do those experiments? <laughs> sure. I'm sure his dad was thrilled. That sounds like a great deal. Well, the interesting thing about it, and this also had huge implications for the rest of his career, his dad said, okay. Hmm. His dad was not so concerned about his son dropping out or Hmm. about the money. His dad was concerned that when Edwin solved the problem, some big corporation would come along and steal it from him. Really? His father was concerned, like, was worried about the issue of protecting what you come up with. Exactly. And so that was the deal they struck. Edwin was permitted to drop out of Harvard. He was given the money, but on condition that he he would immediately seek protection. And that's what he did. 
he uh, actually came up with the first practical polarizing filter, a very thin sheet of plastic with crystals embedded into it. He came up with that in the late 20s. And so when you see polarized sunglasses, that's the thin plastic material that Land invented when he was 19 years old and started his career. Let's talk a little bit more about him as a person because he was a really interesting kind of CEO star in a time before I think we think about CEO stars. Like he was a Steve Jobs, an Elon Musk, a Bill Gates in an era where I don't think most CEOs were those kinds of stars. What was it about him that made him that star type person? He was like the Steve Wozniak and the Steve Jobs. He was the marketing and the brains behind the operation. Well, that, that's true. And, and it's an interesting thing because he had a bit of a dichotomy. On the one hand, he was a very shy guy who um, was really a reclusive in many ways. But on the other hand, when it came to his work and it came to sharing his uh, newest invention with the, the world, he became a tremendous showman. Or even for business, he became a tremendous showman. There's a, there's a great story about once he developed this thin polarizing piece of plastic, he wanted to sell it to a company called American Optical who he thought could make sunglasses from it. Mm -hmm. So Land found himself in Boston. He was at the Copley Plaza Hotel, and he rented a room. And when he went in there, he walked into the lobby holding a goldfish bowl and a manila envelope. And he walks up to the clerk. He says, I want to rent a room. I want your hottest room. This is days before air conditioning. I want direct sunlight coming into this room. The clerk looked on. You can have the whole side of the hotel if you'd like. He goes up there. He places the fishbowl on the sill with the glare of the light coming right in. Knock, knock on the door. The, the representative of American Optical comes in. He says, hi, I'm Edwin Land. Uh, he points over to the window and says, how do you like my goldfish? And the, the guy looks at it and says, what goldfish? Land pulls out the thin sheet of plastic, of polarizer, holds it in front of the fishbowl, voila, the goldfish. And the deal followed very shortly thereafter. And that started him on this career of, of being a showman when it right. came time to uh, share his products with the world. Right, this kind of flair for the dramatic. Big flair. And, yeah. and one, as you pointed out, that Steve Jobs adopted Completely. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs idolized Land. In fact, Steve Jobs really modeled his career after Land. Well, and Land also foreshadowed uh, kind of the tech world as we think of it today. Like, he, he tried to make um, his company fun for employees. There was, like, this cartoon newsletter that would go around the office. There were sports teams. And I, I think um, he bought the idea that a happier employee was maybe a more creative employee. Absolutely. And he also was very much into, and this is a, another big parallel with Steve Jobs, he was completely into the aesthetics of his products and really on two levels. One, on how they looked and how they felt. For example, the SX-70 camera that came out in 1972, which was the first one that would just shoot out of the camera and develop in your hand so that you didn't have to do anything else to it like you know, time it or peel it apart mm. or treat it with a chemical. Mm. When that one came out, he insisted on the first model being covered with leather and come in this leather case. I mean, really raised the price of the product, but he wanted it to look a certain way. 
And in fact, all of his economics guys, his business cohorts were telling him that, okay, you can have that high-end model, but you've got to produce one made out of plastic right? because it'll be much cheaper and a lot more people can buy it. And in the photography business, it's sort of like, you know, razor blades and computer printers. The the money is in the blades and the ink uh, rather than the machine. Well, in photography, to some extent, the money is in the film rather than the camera. So the the more cameras you get out there, the more film you're going to sell. But he resisted that. He For years and years, he would not allow Polaroid to produce a cheaper-looking plastic model camera. So he was very much into the aesthetics, as, of course, Steve Jobs was. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Ron Feirstein, author of the book A Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak Patent War. So... Uh, you're a lawyer. Uh, you were part of this epic case involving Polaroid and Kodak. And you call it, as I said in the title, a war for good reason. This was a battle over who owned instant photography and who had stolen it from who. Um, in simplest terms, for those of us who are not lawyers, what was the dispute between Polaroid and Kodak about? So it was determined very quickly when Kodak came out uh, with their product in 1976 that within its system, which worked a little bit differently and looked a little different, that it employed uh, a number of Polaroid inventions, the arrangement of the film format, the uh, mechanism for shooting the film unit out of the camera, a chemical layer inside the film unit that stabilized the picture even though you know it never really dried out and so on and so forth. These were very individual inventions. Hmm. And so Polaroid sued Kodak uh, for infringing its patents on those particular inventions. And that was litigated over a long period period of time and determined ultimately and uh, uh, by the court that uh, Kodak had indeed infringed Polaroid's patents. Uh, at the end of the day, Kodak had to pay nearly a billion dollars in wow. damages, um, which stood as the record until last year. Again, this was early, uh, by the time the, the judgment was rendered, uh, this was the early 90s. Um, so it was almost a billion dollars back then. And not only that, even more importantly, Kodak had to get out of the business. They, had, they were enjoined from further infringement, which meant they had to take all their cameras and film out of the stores. Really? The judge said, you're out of instant photography. See you later, Kodak. That's right. Really? And even though Kodak said, we have, there are 13 million Americans out there who have our cameras, right. you're going to tell them they can't have film anymore? And the judge said, absolutely. And it's not my doing, it's yours. You know, one, one of the real ironies is that all the work on digital photography, the early work was done in the Kodak labs, but they, they ignored it. And they did not pursue it because they were so invested in conventional photography, you know, film and all that. And uh, by the time they woke up, it was too late. By the time Polaroid woke up, that instant photography was moving on and uh, other technologies had replaced it. It was too late for them to reinvent themselves. There's a similar story about Motorola, which did some really pioneering work on touchscreen phones. But the researchers came to executives and executives said, people don't want touchscreen phones. That'll never take off. We're doing great. We're number one. Um, you know, sort of go back to where you came from. Like, we're just going to keep plowing ahead and didn't really, you know, as it turned out, people did want touchscreen phones. Absolutely. You know, it's it, it's interesting. And this is this goes back to 
uh, what we were discussing earlier about the relationship between jobs and land. I think this is probably the biggest thing that Jobs inherited from land. And it's an interesting story. When Essex 70 came out, and it really was a big deal at the time. It was on the cover of every magazine and, you know, headlines around the world. You played some audio about that earlier. Well, journalists went to land and they said, you know, Dr. Land, how much research, marketing research did you do before you invested all of your company's money in developing this Cameron film. I mean, how, how, how much research did you do? And Land said, what, are you kidding me? We did none. We don't do research. It's not our job to give people what they want. It's our job to give people what they can't even imagine. Hmm. And if that sounds familiar, like something that Steve Jobs said. Yeah, it does. It's it does. not, again, a, uh, a coincidence. I mean, I've heard, you know, Steve Jobs, I've heard Tim Cook say that Apple's whole role in life is to give you something you didn't know you wanted. Ron Fierstein is an entertainment lawyer. He's also the author of the book, A Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak Patent War. Ron, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. On our website, we've got some of the earliest pictures taken with Polaroid cameras. Many taken by Polaroid employees who just went outside and took a picture of the world around them. We've also got side-by-side comparisons of Edwin Land and Steve Jobs making presentations And you will notice that Jobs got his hands on the same rather obscure table by a Finnish designer that Land had also used. Plus, we'll have a link to the full clip of TV host Steve Allen demonstrating the wonders of Polaroid on his late night show. That's all at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. And from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. R.I. Public Radio International.